0: Hi, I'm Ryan Miner. I'm the host of a Minor Detail podcast where it's all about Maryland. We have a no-holds-barred conversation featuring Maryland newsmakers and newsbreakers, journalists, reporters, politicos, politicians, policy wonks, prognosticators, political activists, organizers, community leaders, and so many more. Whew, man, that's a lot of peace. Here on A Minor Detail Podcast, we get to the bottom of every story. We talk about news and politics in an open and honest format. And we find the minor details because every detail matters. You can follow us on the web at aminordetailpodcast.com and aminordetail.com for the latest Maryland news and politics. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the show. Good evening, everybody. My name is Ryan Miner. You are listening to A Minor Detail Podcast. I am your host. You can also find me on the web at aminordetail.com, where I cover Maryland news and politics. Tonight, I have special guest, a special guest with me. Her name is State Senator Jill Carter, and Senator Carter is seeking the 7th Congressional District seat, and she just came on the line. Senator, hey, how are you?
1: Hi, how are you? Thanks for having. me. I'm
0: doing I, absolutely. You're you are you have a standing invitation to come on anytime and I'm excited cuz this is our first interview that we've ever had together. And yesterday you did a big thing. Um you stood uh in Baltimore City um before a statue of a famous jazz singer and you announced that you will be running in the special congressional district 7 election. And so First off, congratulations. That's that's huge. Thank you. Yes. So, all right, Senator, um I told you on offline I'm not going to grill you too hard, <laughs> but I <It's> okay. uh Okay. <laughs> well, no, I you um of anybody, I know that you can certainly uh you, you're very good at interviews. So, you represent currently Maryland's 41st legislative district which encompasses Baltimore City. You were first elected to the Maryland House of Delegates In 2002, and then you resigned in 2017, but then you were appointed to the state Senate seat um, after Nathaniel Oaks became a guest of the government. Um, So, uh, you know, you've got a lot of experience, and so tell me. Tell me your thought process of jumping into this election and this special election.
1: So it it didn't require – a lot of deep thinking as soon as uh governor hogan announced the special election i immediately felt it's time for me to get you know get an exploratory committee together to to see you know to test the waters to see if i have any support because it doesn't make any sense to run if you don't have any support you know at the outside in my opinion um and so it seems that I did, and, and a lot of people kind of, you know, gathered around and said they wanted – frankly, I want to be honest with you. I got a number of texts and, and calls from people even before that, like once we knew that Congressman Cummings had passed away. um, You know, people that – either my friends or, like, watched my work over the years and said, Jill, it's your time. This is your seat. You have to go for it. This is for you. And so, you know, for people who don't know me, you know, I may not understand that, but I talked about this yesterday in my announcement, the fact that I was born in the 7th District, raised there, educated there, and I've served there because the 7th and 41st overlap. But I was a child when I campaigned for Perrin J. Mitchell, the first black congressman for the 7th District. And so what the, – the type of representation that we need uh, in, in the in the ilk of a parent jay mitchell is something that i feel strongly connected to and so i just how i like explain i actually feel kind of like propelled to run for the seat um, based on my background and also based on you know the more recent work that i've been doing in the general assembly
0: the state law senator requires of course the governor he declared a special election to fill the vacancy after congressman cummings death which occurred um on october the 17th of uh of this year and then you'll have a special primary election and then a special general election to fill the remainder of congressman cummings's term and february 4th 2020 there's a special primary election for eligible voters in the seventh congressional district and then they hold a april 28th special general election for voters in the seventh district. So you have filed, and as of yesterday, I believe there were 19 Democrats who filed to run, and then I believe seven Republicans so far. Tell me about your thoughts on the field, and uh, you you know, and I, I, I just want to preface that with you. Uh, yesterday, I saw that Josh Kurtz of Maryland Matters, who's their editor, he wrote a piece, and it's entitled. Jill, Jill Carter may have a path to victory, and in it, um, Josh identifies that there are. He, he predicts there's two front runners and so I want to. I want to kind of hear you break down this field and put your political analyst hat on.
1: <laughs> I like to leave that to the analysts because um, I've never really, to be <laughs> honest with you, most of my races have fallen outside the bounds of of what the analysts believed were, were was going to happen. But and I'll, I'll explain that in a few. But um, so you know, first of all, I think there's more candidates. I, I was just before I called, I saw that
0: there a number probably is. of other
1: people filed before five o'clock today, and so um, there's there's you know, the field is going to be larger. But I think that's good because it reminds me of Elijah Cummings' race in tw- in 1996, um, where there were 27 candidates and he emerged as the lead and. I also feel a kind of, um, you know, um, a kinship with Elijah politically in his early stages before he went to Congress because, like Elijah, I'm a practicing attorney in Baltimore City, and also um, I served a long time in the House of Delegates. And Elijah was elected uh, from the House of Delegates to the Congress. So I think that's, you know, similar similar kind of background. Um,
0: Sh- sure. Um,
1: so, so just so you know, in 2000. So I was actually started to serve in 2003, but in 2002, I uh, was just a, a local attorney, um, and I got connected with some minority contractors, and um, they, we, we, wound up going to Annapolis to protest the bill, and as a result of that, they generally, they, they tried to, they me into running in the next election, and I, prior to that, I had no aspirations to be involved in elected politics or in the General Assembly. Um, and so I I ran. I was not... Embr- you know, I, it was... Um, <clears throat> there were incumbents running, but it was also after a redistricting, so there were also you know, a lot of people running. So not only did I run with no endorsements from any, like, unions or politicians or anything like that, but I won, and not only won, but I got the, the most votes of everyone. And so the reason I, and and so I certainly wasn't predicted in that first election to win and then after that um it was kind of you know to to keep receiving a delegate wasn't super hard you know if you did you know your, your job somewhat but um I never really I never really became a part of the political establishment when I was in the house of delegates like for, what I mean by that is everybody or most people know so like there's democrat packs and stuff like that that raise money for Democrats and um, things things of that nature. At um, no time, when I was in the House of Delegates, for example, did the House Speaker ever attend any fundraiser or event of mine. At no time um, were any of the Democrats fundraisers allowed to work with me, and so I was always kind of alone and isolated. And so, um, but but nonetheless, I maintained a really high uh, vote count in my district.
0: You you did, and I was looking at your your past elections, and there's some real history here and we, i I'd be remiss if i I didn't talk about some of the political dynamics that you faced over your political career that of course you stated you began in two thousand and two at back during that time, you were elected when a Republican governor, Bob Ehrlich, was coming in. And as you said, redistricting was was happening, and so you served your first four years under a republican administration and then, when Governor O'Malley was still then mayor of o'malley you you took you stepped out of you know the traditional democratic box where they don't necessarily criticize one another, but you took him to task about as what you've described as failed policing policies an issue that is near and dear to your heart and something that you've advocated for much of your career which is criminal justice reform and policing tactics and we can talk about that in a moment but you know that must have been difficult at times when you're hey you're calling out the mayor of Maryland's largest city who then goes on to become governor you've never necessarily been inside of the establishment or the the Maryland political democratic Machine, which is so called. So, you know, talk about that. What's that like for you?
1: Well, I was politically naive at the time. And (laughs) I naively thought that just like when, you know, as a lawyer advocating in court, if I can prove my case, if I can show that the facts meet with, you know, the evidence, there's evidence and facts that I can make the case. And that, you know, once people see that this is a problem, they'll be willing to fix it. I, I did not. I wasn't prepared for the level of wrath that I received, and you know, denial. And um, but you know, I did receive. That's what happened. And so um, it was only after that that you know, I, I honestly feel that my political career um, just it went in a whole different direction. I think than how I started. You know, I think I started like, wow. You know, I was I was born in Baltimore, raised here. You know, had a, a, a relative, relatively well-known family name. And I was a lawyer. And I don't know, I, I just kind of expected a different result at the time that people would say, oh, yeah, we should never have arrests without probable cause. Oh 750,000 people arrested over a number of years. Oh, that's way too many. Let's fix that problem. That's the reaction I expected. OK. And um, instead, it, it turned into this whole um, force field of denial of the, the reality of the situation. And this kind of, like, me versus, you know, David versus Elias, because O'Malley grew in power, and um, he took that very personally. And he had so much clout and so much power, like, over media and over other Democrats that for many, many years I, I was very much treated as an outcast. And, um, you know, I, I endured because I thought it was important to – I mean, I, I always felt that, you know – you have to do what's right, and so I stayed in the House of Delegates for many years, even though I was pretty unhappy, and I didn't feel that I was treated fairly. But um, I felt I filled a space that would not have been filled at the time if I left. So that's you know what I stayed for. In
0: uh, speaking of again, <laughs> former Governor Martin O'Malley, look, you 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 crushed it out uh, a year ago in a democratic primary against none other than Martin O'Malley's son-in-law uh JD Merrill who you know i i'm sure the irony is not lost on you about what occurred there and even though Nat Oaks was um convicted and he was technically still on the ballot but your race really came down to that i mean the, the primary between you and governor O'Malley's son-in-law and so how did that race go? What was that like? You weren't backed by Mike Miller. You weren't you weren't given the benefit of the doubt, even though you'd been a longtime state delegate in Baltimore City. You didn't have those establishment fundraisers in the back of Harry Brown's with you know the the Democratic machine. So I, I'm I'm it's it's interesting when people say, well, this race is between two people, even though there's a ton of Democrats. I I I, I see you as very much of an outsider who approaches this still as an outsider and like you said you want to be the people's champion
1: well it's true and to be honest with you the people need a champion um because too often the people's needs are just you know put on the back burner to appease uh the the moneyed interest and the special interest and that's in annapolis and in washington and so even if you know we love all of our elected officials i think there's always a space for someone that is not going to be seduced by the money, interest, and by the power of the leadership in these bodies.
0: Uh, Senator Carter, what's your relationship currently with Governor O'Malley? Do you have one? No. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, you know, I. Answer.
1: Well, I mean, I mean, I can elaborate just a little bit about my election last year. So, for the record, um. When I left the House of Delegates, I believed that my entire political career was over, and I was totally fine with that. Um, I was so happy that the former mayor, Pugh, appointed me to be the director of civil rights for Baltimore City. I thought I would retire from that job, and I was was happy with that job. But then the situation happened with Oaks, and many people uh, kind of pressured me to run. For Senate, and I, 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 very, very reluctant at the beginning because I said, you know, did you miss the part when I said I didn't want to be in the help in the um, general Maryland legislature anymore? But um, people just felt really strongly, and so not only was I not backed by the establishment, let's be very clear, the establishment went to the court of appeals to keep Oaks on the ballot intentionally yeah. uh, because they believed by splitting the black vote that O'Malley's son-in-law would win. Um, and, and And he re- outraised me more than three to one. He had been campaigning for about a year before I even entered the race because he had moved into the district specifically to run for the seat. I think he initially anticipated running against Oaks and so basically, I got in late um, I, I wasn't really into it, so to speak, at the beginning and and um, I faced some really harsh attacks um, from him. That surely came from O'Malley because they were very O'Malley-esque attacks. But um, and so initially I was like, wait a minute, this is for the birds. What am I doing? I don't want to do this. But then you know, the more that I, I was into it, I was inspired to win. And and you know, I'm so happy now that I ran, I ran and won. Um, I've had a wonderful one year in the Senate, and I find the Senate, I found the Senate over this year to be completely different than my experience in the House of Delegates.
0: I was I was thinking about the the changes in Maryland politics in just one year. And looking back from January until now, November, it's we're almost at the end of the year. We're, We're almost ready to head into the 2020 legislative session. Think about this, Senator Carter, how much change in Maryland has occurred simply in the year 2019. You have the. The late Speaker Bush, who passed away back in April, a day before the uh, signee die. Then we have Mayor Catherine Pugh, who then steps down, the mayor of Maryland's largest city. And we'll we'll get to her in a moment. And then, of course, we have an announcement last month that uh, uh, Mike Miller is going to step down as Senate president. He has some health issues that he's battling and Bill Ferguson was elected, so that was obviously a big win for the Baltimore City delegation, and and then we elected Adrian Jones, the first African American female, the first female in in mm-hmm. the history of Maryland as the speaker. Do you what do you make of that? I see there's just so many changes happening in just one year.
1: Oh, it's incredible, and, and I'm I'm very excited about it. Um, because, you, know, you know, when I left the House Delegates in the 20, end of 2016, really, um, I left out of a frustration that I thought this place is never going to change, the culture is never going to change, and I'm wasting my life here. Um, I'm pushing initiatives for, for a decade or more that are never going to be embraced. Yet, when I came back this year in 2018, uh, 2019, I, 2018 2019, I found that there is a core group of newer legislators that are definitely – of um, more of a progressive mindset, less of a we have to all kind of like stick together in unity on bad policy mindset as to what I had experienced in the House. So, I mean, it's amazing to me that the two longest serving leaders of the House and Senate are both simultaneously around the same time leaving. Um, And I'm, I'm actually, you know, sad about Mike Miller because he has an institutional knowledge that nobody else has or probably will ever have and um, you know he's he's a good leader for the Senate in my opinion in the might year I experienced anyway um, but at the same time I can't be unhappy about Bill Ferguson who is um, a person who represents Baltimore City prioritizes education and has a progressive bench so this is a very exciting time I think what what is going to be able to be accomplished remains to be seen but certainly um, it's just amazing. I never could have anticipated Maryland politics changing in this manner. And even, even Mayor Pugh, I, I, I talked about this to someone earlier. It's amazing that from the day of the bill hearing on University of Maryland medical system until her resignation was two weeks. I, I've never seen a political career change that drastically in a period of two weeks.
0: Well, as I wrote on Facebook earlier today that I accredit this, the, the, some of these changes as a result of the journalism that was done by the Baltimore Sun. And I we have to give them credit because they did an extraordinarily extraordinary job of uncovering important information that resulted in a scandal and then the subsequent resignation and then federal indictment. Uh, Senator, you were an early supporter of Catherine Pugh's mayoral bid when she ran uh, almost four years ago. Have you spoken with the mayor since her resignation? What's your relationship like with with, with Catherine Pugh?
1: I have not spoken with her since her resignation. Um, some people are under the impression, because I, I went to work in her administration initially, that we are friends, like we hang out. That's not true. I had a decent working relationship with, with her in the Senate. And unlike a lot of other Democrats, she was kind to me when she was a senator. And so that was, you know, something that made, that made her that distinguished her in my mind. But, um, let me say that I haven't spoken with her in part because I felt like, um, even if she doesn't overtly blame me for any of this, I can't imagine that I'm a voice that she really wants to hear from. So I have not called her and, and she hasn't called me, but, um, I just think that um, what has happened is uh, astounding for the city, and I think that what is important for people to focus on now is that even though there's allegations against Mayor Pugh that are, you know, just about her and or her her possible actions and or inactions, um, uh, so many things are implicated here, like campaign financing, like the fact that she ostensibly created an illegal scheme in order to fund a mayoral campaign. And that speaks to the fact that these, these races are, you know, cost an astronomical amount of money and that we need campaign finance reform. There's things like um, the fact that she didn't do these deals, these transactions on her own. Other um, contractors and nonprofits and even the school system um, engaged in a transaction about these healthy Holly books. And so that speaks to the fact that we have a pay-to-play culture where Mayor maybe has too much power and we need to take a look at how we can fix that problem. Um, and so my point is that we have to learn what are the systemic flaws that have led to this kind of thing. And, you know, whatever's going to happen with her legally is going to happen. But she was not completely alone in all of the things that occurred, especially not with the University of Maryland medical system. I mean, they chose to buy the book. Do you know what I mean? They They chose to engage in self-dealing, um, for all of their board members that had goods and services, not just for uh, the mayor. So these are all things that we, as people that want to be have responsible government, need to have oversight on and, and, and create accountability and transparency.
0: She was – Mayor Pugh, of course, you're referring to the, the scandal. Uh, mayor Pugh was paid $500,000 by the UMMS, the UMMS board for her Healthy Holly Children's book series, and she then – called the bill or rather she called the book deal a regrettable mistake and you during this last session you sponsored a bill um that would overhaul this the university of maryland medical system board and the bill basically would bar members from holding these single source contracts with the board and it would require as you said financial disclosures and also this would dissolve the current board over several stages and for, for, for people who are listening, the University of Maryland Medical System Board, it, this is a private nonprofit organization. It operates 13 hospitals in the state of Maryland, and it's one of the largest employers in the state of Maryland, and it has received over $25 million in funds over the last two years. So tell me about this legislation, and it looks like you've, you've generated and garnered bipartisan support.
1: Well, not only that, I mean, once um, I think that a combination of the media coverage probably had a lot to do with the fact that as soon as um, it was out, you had even, you know, then Speaker Bush was still alive, and um, even Governor Hogan, and of course, President Miller, all decided, you know, made comments that this is like the worst corruption scandal that they've seen. Um, And it was amazing to me, because, you know, at the time, both uh, leaders of each leader of each house had a position on the board, even though Miller had um relinquished his to to someone else um a surrogate but you know also a part of the legislation is that no longer elected officials are on the board um I think that it was a very quick decision on their part that we have to do something about this because it it really looks bad you know for University of Maryland and possibly even for us um I do believe that no one that, that the they weren't paying attention and I do think that this board had become rogue and runaway board and felt that it could do anything that it wanted to do. And and what's important too is that this board gave grant gave thing, money labeled grant, grant money, which I you know, I've never in my life heard of a grant a grant to a political campaign. But it gave grants to the inaugural committees of both the mayor and the governor. And and I'm bringing that up to say that whatever Mayor Pugh did, she did, but she was far from alone. Um, The the board members and the board were really operating in a very, very um, fast and loose manner with no oversight whatsoever.
0: Well, here's the question, and you bring up an important and salient point. If they were operating under no oversight, I, I guarantee you, and you know this, that this has been occurring for years, and this wasn't, you know, 2019 wasn't the first time that the, the that somebody made a made a made us think about this because it's been people have been showcasing these issues, these ethical concerns for years, but it finally took something catastrophic to happen in this state for this. For the University of Maryland Medical System Board, to to be overhauled fundamentally. So I'm sure that this has been years in the making, and it's just sad that it didn't occur earlier.
1: I agree, and I think that we need to set our sights on other quasi-public-private uh, entities such as this, uh, because I think that they lack accountability and transparency as well. This is just one, one board, but I think there are multiple, multiple others that need to be Um, Taking a look at. Um, But can I go back for a second? It's something you said about the Baltimore Sun and and the article with Luke Broadwater. So one thing that really has resonated with me, and this is true, because I was such an outcast in the House of Delegates that, you know, the leadership didn't like me and O'Malley didn't like me. Um, The Baltimore Sun um, had always been somewhat hostile toward me. And true story, in all of the years I was in the House of Delegates, the Baltimore Sun never reported one single time on any piece of legislation that I ever sponsored. They might have made reference to a couple of bills, but they never credited me with being a sponsor. So the interesting thing about this is that at the same time that there's all this change in the legislature, there was also change at the Baltimore Sun. We had two brand-new reporters down in Annapolis this year, Pam Wood and Luke Broadwater. For all of the years I'd been there before, we had veteran uh, journalist Michael Dresser. And so my point is, had we not had the new blood at the sun that was not so in bed with the leadership in the General Assembly, most likely oh. this would never have been reported.
0: Do you think so, that, Michael, do you think that, ha- you know, of course, Michael Dresser is a veteran, longtime House reporter for the sun who retired and I think ended up moving south. Are uh, and clearly you're happy about that change in personnel uh do you think that that michael dresser did a disservice to uh to 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 journalism or rather just in in not covering that based on his relationships as you say um what do you what do you make of that
1: so it's funny that you would use that that, that word because i actually said that before Which word? many times that disservice i actually have said you know i don't want to i don't want to you know uh, you know, talk bad about somebody that's gone. But basically, I always said that Michael Dresser and the Sun did a disservice to the people of Maryland because of the way that they reported only what leadership wanted them to report and who they they talked to, who the legislators that they directed them to talk to. And they absolutely wouldn't talk to or report on anything from anyone that, they, that the leadership didn't want them to talk to. And it was ridiculous. Um, and so for so many years, and seriously, uh, 14 years, not one bill reported first year in the senate a bill first of all this wasn't my only bill that was reported but uh, you know a, a bill like university of maryland medical system reported and it was the reporting that caused the very quick response it, no doubt about it had there not been a report i don't think the legislature would have acted as swiftly
0: well i i see that the legislature is currently you know they're they're moving in the right direction and i think that as you mentioned there's always more opportunity for oversight. Uh, Senator, I, I want to mention that you, you – and you, you you said this earlier. You grew up in this district. You're the daughter of the late Walter P. Carter. He was a civil rights activist. Your mother was a teacher. You went to Western High School. You got a B.A. in English um, at Loyola, and then you got a, uh, a J.D. from the University of Baltimore in 1992. And did you ever see yourself at that point? when you were a little younger and you were getting out of college, going to law school, did you ever see yourself in a, an elected position or did you just want, did you want it to be an attorney?
1: So I I thought I just wanted to be an attorney, but the truth is I think my, my undying passion since I was a child was to figure out a way to carry out sort of the, the mission and vision of my dad. Like, you know, first of all, aside from the fact that he, was a committed activist that made changes in Baltimore and in Maryland. It made life life better for people and moved us forward when it came to the civil rights movement. Um, Every little girl that loses a father early searches for that, that father forever. And so I was always like a sponge looking for information about my father. And the more I learned about him, the more I was fascinated by him. And so I always wanted to be somewhat like him, and I always felt because my mom used to tell me when I was a child and he wasn't home, you know, dad's out um, fighting for liberation or however she said it. And so I felt very strongly when he died, like, well, if, did he finish? You know, is, is all of that over? If not, who's going to do it now? And, I, you know, I left it alone. I went about the business of growing up. But then I got older, and I realized there's a lot to be fixed here in this city. Right. So, yeah, um, I don't think I knew it was law or I knew it was politics, but my, my passion has always been justice, fairness, equality, and those kinds of things.
0: Well, your Twitter, your Twitter profile – I'm going to read it. It says, um, <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, you're a freedom fighter. You're a love spreader, a lawyer, a civil rights leader. Uh, a people, people's champ and a, and a senator, and that's um, that that about covers it for your career. I mean, that's who you are. That that's, that's a, a pretty great. good, yeah. That's 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 very good. So, your district, the seventh, uh, where you live and what where you seek to represent, it represents portions of Baltimore City. I, I believe it's about fifty. 50- 50 50 percent or so and it represents you would also represent Howard and Baltimore County and so here we are and I I want you first though uh, as we dip into why you're running for Congress what you would hope to accomplish and what you would carry over and parlay from your career as an elected official uh, can you speak to Elijah Cummings I I, want to hear directly from you about who he is your relationship with Um, the late congressman, the uh, the late uh, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, and what he meant to you.
1: So I liked Elijah Cummings a lot before I was in politics. Um, I knew him as a state delegate and a lawyer, and he came to my law school when I was a student. And as a result of that, I asked him when I did a law clinic to come and speak to my students in the law clinic, which was a clinic called Street Law, that I taught uh, street law to Southwestern high school students at the time. And, you know, I, I thought he was a pretty dynamic speaker even back then. And, you know, I liked him. And we, we weren't super close, but, you know, we had a relationship. Uh, frankly, once I was elected, and again, I was that outcast by the Democrat machine in O'Malley, I didn't have a lot of allies, and so we didn't have a super close relationship. Last year in my Senate race, he reached out to me and said, Jill, I want to help you. And I was happily surprised. And, you know, I've, I've given some statements, even the fact that he called me the people's champion, um, that he made other comments because he, he did a mailer for me and a robocall um, where he said the things that I've mentioned, like I need Jill Carter fighting for fight, helping me fight Trump's policies in Annapolis or something like that. And she's the people's champion. She has a vision and heart for our communities and that kind of thing. So he said these really wonderful things. And I feel super sad personally because we were only just beginning to build a relationship, um, you know, from my election last year and for the first few months. I hadn't talked to him at all for the, you know, the last you know half of a year before he passed away. Um, I felt a really a sense of extreme sadness uh, because I felt a sense of loss of Not just this great man who had risen to such high heights in the in the Congress, um, and who, by all accounts, was a principled person with great integrity, um, and also, you know, uh, I think that I think he was the perfect person to like carry out these impeachment proceedings. At any rate, I, I feel a sense of loss just not just for the country, but personally, because I wish that I'd had more time to develop a relationship with him. Um, well. But I. I it, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah,
0: his his loss was um was a w- was sad for all of us. And um I as watching him from from my perspective, he showed a lot of moral clarity, especially during the the hearings um, as he was chairman of the House Oversight Committee. And I remember back in the summertime, I believe, or it was earlier this year when he was when he had uh, President Trump's. Uh, former personal attorney Michael Cohen before the committee, and of course Michael Cohen was testifying before Congress, knowing full well he was going to jail. And uh, he said something that was just to to Michael Cohen that um, it, 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 that showed who he was as a person, and he showed grace, he showed compassion, and I I saw that in in, in, in Congressman Cummings, and I was. He, he was someone that I, I didn't know him, and I, I I don't even know if I ever met him, but I I think that he was a, a decent person, and he really showed that, and was um, a, a moral leader, and did things that were um, he did things for moral reasons. So it's is his loss is sad. Now, which brings us to the election. His Congress has to move forward. Uh, representation in the state of Maryland has to move forward, and you are now in this race. You are you're running for this special primary, and I, I'm, I'm just – I have to go back to, to Maryland Matters, uh, Josh Kurtz's column. He said – he wrote that uh, you're going to have a grassroots campaign full of committed supporters ready to move those mountains and walk through fire, and you – she'll run with a chip on her shoulder and an outsider's edge appealing the characteristics for scrappy Baltimore. And you have policy chops, he wrote. You benefit from your civil rights. Uh, work or uh, and you've been a he called you a giant killer over the past year and a half. We already <laughs> mentioned i know that's um that that's quite a supplerative there and so you know there this race is going to be wildly fascinating to watch from a media perspective a journalist perspective because all of us are going to try to be angling to see where the the support is coming from, how candidates are going to run their campaigns. And so Senator, how do you plan to run your campaign?
1: So I'm gonna do, you know, what I've always done, except to you know, I've, I've gotten better over the years. Last year's Senate race, um, you know, I'm 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 I've run a campaign um more recently than anyone else in the race too. Well, not well, not some of the delegates, but you know, the the other uh, you know, the former former congressman for example. Um, I'm gonna do what I've always done, which is hit the streets, talk to the people try to build up my volunteer base as much as possible because I've never enjoyed uh, enough money to like have major paid staff for the duration of a campaign. Usually that has come for me at the very, at the last moment, at the last possible moment, I get everything that I need um, to win, but um, I'm going to build up the volunteer base. We started with a large core of people signing up to volunteer. Um, I anticipate money, raising money being a challenge, but, I'm hiring a firm to help me raise money, and it's a firm that's used to working with progressive candidates and other people that are in Congress that are kind of on the more progressive wing, and so I hope I'll be able to compete. I think that I anticipate it being the way it started, which is that I anticipate Elijah Cummings' wife getting a great deal of deference, especially like even outside of Maryland but on a national scale – and I, I'm aware that the former congressman has a great deal of name recognition nationally as well, but I'm keenly aware of the fact that this election is going to be won in the district and not on the national stage.
0: It seems like this this this, this, seven, uh, this seventh district special election it, it it sort of reminds me of the presidential primary in the sense that there's a candidate for every every political. Um, persuasion, every political side, that everybody sort of matches uh, a particular set of values within the democratic party, and so where do you stand on that on that political scale? you You use the word progressive. do you define yourself as a progressive democrat
1: I do, but in the true sense of the word. And I think it's very much overused just like liberal and conservative are overused and they can't always be used to pigeonhole people into what they are. But um I believe that combined with my being progressive is that I am also independent and principled, meaning that I've never been a person to go along with policy ideas or legislation because it is the popular thing to do, but I assess it for myself and I, I try to ascertain whether I think it's right for the people I represent or if it's hurtful for people and I make my decisions accordingly. And so over the years, I've had definitely some issues where, you know, a lot of people didn't agree with my decisions, (laughs) but I I felt, you know, that strongly in in my principle on it. So um, I, I think the difference is that I think that both of, or all of the other candidates are going to be exactly what they've shown themselves to be in their, their careers up until now, which is people that are interested in, um, Uh, seizing an opportunity, elevating themselves within the Democratic Party and, um, you know, being a part of the team. I don't see anyone else in the race being an independent person that is going to put people first, people and policies that help people. You know, it it hasn't gone unnoticed, you know, the criticisms that came from the Trump administration, um, which I think were, were blatantly unfair, lodged against Elijah Cummings. But the truth is we can do better in our district. We can do better on the ground. We can create more opportunities for people. We can bring resources into the city. We can bring resources and hold the housing authority accountable, Um, which, you know, it was recently in the news that the housing authority of Baltimore City is going to stop taking um, applications for public housing in December because they have a five- to seven-year waiting list, which is absurd. You know what I'm saying? So, and, And we're talking about for substandard housing, so I do believe there are things that we can do better and that I can do better and differently than probably any of the other candidates.
0: There is this perception that Baltimore City, and I hate to say it, and I think it's an unfair perception, but that Baltimore City is kind of lost. It's lost its way, that it's uh, it's struggling. Mean, and I think that empirically it is, there is some struggles there. There's a, There's an issue with crime, that there's an issue... Um, with uh homelessness but it's not these are not these are not issues that every other major city in this country faces. It just seems like Baltimore City is highlighted and you 're right. the criticism that was aimed at elijah 's uh, when you know, during the you know the last few months of his life and in fact, it was criticism that was largely spurred by uh, for potentially one of your republican opponents her name is kim klasik and she released that video where she went into the city and then the president uh somehow got word of it and then he tweeted it out and it caused some real issues and that that wasn't fair and he i think he was using it as a political prop rather than showing genuine concern for the residents of baltimore city but senator you've seen this up close in person your entire life you know the district residents you understand their values you've you've been at, you've knocked those doors and you've talked to thousands of people over your career so there's no magic fix for baltimore city but what can you do to continue along i don't want to say f- carry on elijah's service but rather how can you how can you move this district forward in a way that wasn't happening in the last five or ten or fifteen years.
1: So, in all honesty, I think that Baltimore City suffers from uh, a lot of uh, political, a lot of policies and and political leadership that has not served all of the communities well. The growth, the growth in equity we have, is something that could have been addressed had anyone been willing to address it years ago. Much of the problem that we have here is based on just, you know, gross inequity in the neighborhoods and the individuals, lack of investment in neighborhoods and individuals. And so a few things will be taken care of, I think, in the short term on the state level, because I think that the state, even though we'll be fighting the governor, I think we're going to pass um, the, the, the uh, Kerwin uh, legislation, and that's going to over time over a few, you know, the next several years, it's going to improve our schools. And that's one of the most fundamental things that we need to do in Baltimore City. But I also think this issue of creating opportunities for people, um, the issue of people that once they have had the taint of a criminal record, we don't create any opportunities for them outside of returning to criminality. Um, It's got to be addressed, and that's something that is a priority for me. I also think one of the things that is exciting to me and enticing to me about going to Congress is that as a state legislator, I don't really have any power over resources or money or funds to bring to the district outside of capital bond bills. Um, of course, for certain things and issues and projects, you can get maybe budget language or get a few things, month, but it's, it's not, it's not easy to do. Um, I think that the idea that there's a potential to bring greater resources to to the city, especially, one of our greatest needs and one of our greatest deprivations is transportation. Um, our transportation system is wholly inept, and that has a lot to do with you know the people's inability to to work and get back and forth um, to to lead productive lives.
0: So, and uh, in, in, in cap in thinking ahead, um, you, you get into Congress and you you go and you serve out this term. What? Where do you? Where do you find your place in Congress? What? What is it that you want to do, or what committees would you like to join, and and uh, what? What do you want to make your mission as a member of the United States House of Representatives?
1: Oh, that's such a hard loaded question, but you know, I, I'll tell you. Um, I need, immediately, and much to the grand of probably some people that know me well, I'd want to also be in the Congress on whatever the equivalent um, judiciary committee is, you know, I'm a career attorney and these are the issues that I am most passionate about. Um, and so I would, even though, and everybody always complains now in the um, state legislature, because they're not committees where it's easy to raise money. But um, so it's, I, it's still my passion and those are the committees I would like. But I think we've talked about it. I think this idea of good government um rooting out corruption, making people trust representation and government, bringing people into the fold to participate in government. You know, part of the, uh, there's a lot of things wrong with, with, you know, that create um, the problems that we have in Baltimore. But one of the, the greatest is we have an entire class of people that has completely checked out of the political process. And so, You know, everyone is elected, like the mayor's race is going to, you know, everybody's, like, slicing up a piece of the electorate that participates. We have, like, almost half of that entire electorate that doesn't participate, and they don't participate. One, because we failed them in terms of educating people into how politics um, intersects with their lives. But the second reason they don't participate is because they don't have any faith in elected officials. They don't trust us. And one of the things we have to do is we have to prove that we can be trusted. And we have to work with people to build them up. And I, I know that sounds kind of soppy, but it's really the truth. You know, you can't be in office and then be just in your body, in the halls of the Congress or in the halls of the, the State House. You have to bring that back to the people and show them how um, what you do and how policy intersects with their lives. Uh, yeah. and, and, and you know, and this is another thing that's going to sound kind of soppy, but you have to show people that you care about them. And I do think that we lack that. I think it's difficult to do that. Um, some, sometimes, even you know, now as a state senator,
0: it can't be lost on you that Maryland, as is forward-thinking as a state is, we think it is, and I I think that Maryland has taken the lead on some major pieces of progressive legislation. Yet the dist- or the delegation to Congress, it it doesn't necessarily reflect all of Maryland. And what I mean by that is. Where are the women in our delegation? Where are the women?
1: They left with Barbara Mikulski and Donna Edwards, unfortunately. And so you bring up a good point. I think it's time to have a woman back, or more than one woman, actually. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's it's 2019. Um, I don't think an all-male delegation adequately adequately reflects um, our population. Uh,
0: Looking at your potential opponent, Maya Rockamore Cummings, who just stepped down as the chairwoman of the Maryland Democratic Party, and the relationships that she may have with people inside of Washington being the spouse and being a former gubernatorial candidate. um, Are are you concerned by the the amount of money that perhaps, and you, you alluded to this earlier, that perhaps that uh, uh dr cummings could uh rockamore Cummings could bring into this race and i uh, and I'm sure you've heard this uh, well it's inevitable for for her to to she's elijah's wife this is this is gonna be pretty much written in stone before it even began It's gonna be nearly impossible to win this but what what is your take on that? What do you think
1: so I do think she's gonna have um the advantage of people feeling that she's a default next congressperson, just by virtue of the fact that she was Elijah Cummings' wife. Um, And I don't want to engage in the type of effort to discredit her that, you know, um, some other people did recently. I'm going to take her at her word that, you know, she believes that her husband wanted her to have the seat. However, that being said, as a person that has lived here my entire life and loved this community my entire life there's no other place in the whole country i would ever go or want to go and serve i don't feel the same thing about her because she's you know raised in texas been in washington most of her life and really spent very little time here um even though she's been involved in washington politics she has not been involved in local community um and so i do think that there's a different you know she brings a different set of skills and a different type of, um, you know, connection to people that that I do. And so, you know, I'm just going to continue to do what I do. I feel like, I feel like I know what people need here, and I'm willing to do it. I also feel strongly that I want to serve for the people, and I don't want to serve just for myself, or to use this just as an opportunity. Um, And so, You know, so I have to. I do think she'll have a lot of money, but you know, as you know, that's not the definitive thing. I've I've been up against that before, but I'm I'm also planning, you know, to raise some of my own. And I think that because across this country there are a lot of new uh, progressive um, organizations and entities that have an interest in getting a more uh, progressive and innovative and independent person in Congress, I do think that I'll be able to raise some money and have some support um but you know you're right because she's already kind of probably made her her deals with um with you know the speaker of the house and those people and so once she gets there she's not going to really be um able to to have any um any any actions outside of any policy initiatives outside of whatever they approve and i think
0: that's 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 a fair statement and in addition you don't have to introduce yourself to the district residents. They know you. You've been there. Well, You've been on the I have not
1: introduce myself to the, the ones outside of Baltimore City. I've never run oh, outside Baltimore of Baltimore, Baltimore. City
0: before. Right, but I'm saying yeah. that even still, you, you grew up there, born, raised. You understand the concerns. You 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 represent a constituency. Now they've they've elected you. You've you're their representative, and you know I am. I'm someone who follows politics just as close as anybody in the state, and you know the era of inevitability has often, as of recent, been shattered. Right? I mean, look, who would have thought that Mary Washington would have won that race against a someone who was was clearly being backed by the the establishment of of Maryland Democratic politics, and then we, here we are on in 2019 on November 20th. Mary Washington today is now launching a mayoral bid. You serve with Senator Washington in the state senate. You know, what are, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you guys are two progressive women um carving your own paths, have taken on some tough votes and tough issues, and I look at you both as trailblazers in a sense that you kind of do your own thing, you go your own way. All right,
1: well, I love Senator Washington. She's super she's super smart and um certainly capable. Um I had a wonderful time serving with her this year on the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee, um, and so she's my people. I definitely think she's capable to do the job um, I'm excited for, her, to be honest with you. Um, you know, uh, running for mayor is uh, not for the faint of heart. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no. I, I'd imagine not. They, they've so got the I'm work sure cut she's out.
1: Up, she's up to the task, but you know – the more people that get in this race and the more diversity that's in this race, because she does present a different kind of of of, of candidate than anyone else in this race so far, um, I think it's good for the people and good for democracy to have choice.
0: Now, that's, it's certainly a, a choice that many of the voters in the city of Baltimore will have to make in the upcoming election. On the national politics, of course, we are literally in the midst of a Senate, or rather a House, impeachment inquiry. They're testifying as we speak for round two of today. Have you been following uh, the impeachment inquiry? And you know, if you were to have a vote based on, I'm sorry te-
1: to say that I have not, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm and, and I'm not making excuses, but you know, I'm still a practicing attorney and. You know, I just don't have that much time to sit around and look at it. But my intention is to catch up on the summaries every evening. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I I do the same. In the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, they release a, a nice detailed summary of who said what and what it means, and they they break it down in analysis. And so I'm 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 following this closely as I'm sure the rest of the country is. But what do you what's your take? I I have to ask you what do you what do you think about this presidency for the last three years?
1: Well, I'd be, of course, in favor of you know. So, so some of the other candidates have said, "Oh, if I were there, I'd vote for impeachment." Well, can I be honest with you? I don't think there's any Democrat in this race that wouldn't say they would vote for impeachment because our constituency, for the most part, just hates Trump. Okay, that's not that's like a not, that's not a hard call for us to make. Um, but I think that it's important that that it, it is being pursued, and um, I, I think that from the information I have so far, it looks like.
0: It has some teeth. Uh, it seems like it, and it seems like that every time the Democrats call another witness or a a witness that was called by the minority party, it seems like that their own witnesses uh, contradict what their uh, desired outcome was. And. It seems like every time they call a new witness, they have some more, some additional incriminating evidence against the president to show that he extorted the Ukraine to uh, investigate his potential political opponent and Joe Biden. Um, let me ask you this question: It's, it's hard have, to
1: believe that we're here. It's, it's hard to believe that we're here. That there's a sentiment in this country that none of the Democrat uh, candidates can defeat this this president, especially. Isn't he's that something? Under. It's an amazing to me. Um and amazing. have
0: you have you picked a democratic candidate to support in this crowded field?
1: Well, I like uh two of them and I haven't no I haven't chosen. I can tell you that four years ago I was a Bernie Sanders delegate, which was different from Maryland because most people were Hillary, Hillary Clinton people. Um and I definitely still love and lean toward what Bernie stands for, but um I'm kind of waiting to see, you know, who's at the top near the end
0: (laughs) right and is it fair to say that whomever emerges as the democratic candidate that you would support and rally behind
1: i would in this instance yes now i can be honest with you you couldn't say that every single election ever but yeah absolutely in this instance absolutely
0: well it seems like the state of maryland is. i'm
1: happy that we've had some some real um um you know with with warren and bernie uh we and some of the other um you know lesser known candidates we 've had some good debate um we 've had some people that are bringing the party i think closer to the needs of the people than we sometimes in the past but um i i, I don't know i'm concerned that uh that there's you know we we, we won 't come together but i I'm not, i don't know how it 's going to turn out i mean i, I How do I explain? It's it's one of the things that still does bother me is that you know it's still kind of structured and like the DNC controls who gets to speak and when and I would much rather be able to have to hear from like all of the potential candidates up until the very end.
0: Well, I think that's fair to say, and I think you're going to hear from them, and in fact, you're going to hear directly from the candidates tonight on a MSNBC. A debate. I will be watching. I will be following that closely as I've watched every debate. It's almost like a a popcorn and beer party or whatever you choose to drink. So I'm going to be following tonight's debate and see what happens. As uh, it looks like Mayor Pete Buttigieg from Indi- uh, South Bend, Indiana, is quickly rising and he might be a target at tonight's, uh, like Elizabeth Warren was during the last debate and Joe Joe Biden. But Senator. Most of all, I'm going to be following the 7th Congressional District. Uh, you, you are a delightful guest. I appreciate your honesty. And I do appreciate you coming on the show for the very first time. And I'm sure we'll have many subsequent conversations down the road. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, it's fascinating to watch how Maryland politics is really a microcosm of the rest of the nation. Uh, I think we live in a great state. This the city of Baltimore is uh, our look. It's a it's the economic hub of Maryland. It's uh, a city that we've all loved. I'm born and raised in Hagerstown um, and grew up there, lived there all my life, and then I live in Montgomery County now. So uh, this is personal for all of us. This is personal who represents us. It's personal um, of how the leadership can can help restore a city that needs a little help right now, to be honest. And um, I'm I'm excited to watch your candidacy. Unfold. So uh, I, I appreciate you coming on and being a guest.
1: Thank you. I'm looking forward to campaigning, and I've always loved the campaigning, and I like to talk to everybody. And so really quickly, yesterday after my announcement on Pennsylvania Avenue, we enjoyed going up and down Pennsylvania Avenue just talking to people on the street, and um, that's the kind of thing I love to do. And someone had said this about me before. I'll talk to the people that no one else will talk to. But um, may I say – may I make one little teeny pitch? Absolutely. My pitch is, uh, please, listeners, uh, follow my Facebook page Jill P. Carter for Congress, and my Twitter page Jill P. Carter uh, for updates about what we're going, what we're doing in this race. Um, and, and I'd appreciate that. And also, secretly, quietly, I, I'm trying to be like the person with the most followers.
0: Well, <laughs> that's always the goal of any candidate is to have uh, a followers on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever other social media outlet people are using these days. I can't even keep up. Uh, my own my own kids are like always changing it up. Um, you also have a website, which is JillPCarter.com, and they can read about you, your issues, well, sign well, up to volunteer. Actually, let me
1: caveat to that. JillPCarter.com Jill is my Senate um, website, but for the okay. congressional race, I had to build another website. So it's simply Jill Carter for Congress. Jillcarterforcongress.com.
0: Okay. Well, that's easy to remember. Jill Carter for Congress.com. <laughs> Senator Carter of Maryland's Fightin 41st legislative district, which encompasses Baltimore City. I appreciate your time coming on tonight. Thank you so much, and best of luck to you as you travel during this journey. It's a thank you. Thank you. Have a great night. You
1: too.
0: All right, folks, that was State Senator Jill P. Carter, who is running in the special election for the 7th District Congressional seat, and you can check her out again on jillcarterforcongress.com. Follow her on Facebook and Twitter. My name is Ryan Miner. You can follow me at aminordetailpodcast.com and at aminordetail.com, where I cover Maryland news and politics. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and have a happy week. You can subscribe to a Minor Detail podcast on iTunes, CastBox, Overcast, or any application where you listen to podcasts. Like a Minor Detail podcast on Facebook and follow the conversation on Twitter at AMD Podcast. If you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring a Minor Detail podcast, please reach out to me at ryan at aminordetail.com. Thanks so much for listening.